Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Chiller. And some of you can hopefully see me, some of you can hopefully hear me. I'm back experimenting with video, um, still figuring it out, still working it out, still experimenting. My streams are now mostly getting there, but the Weekly Squeak I am still experimenting with because it's kind of my weekly news show. Um don't want to spend too much time in, in post-production, <laughs> but we're getting there. This week is a little different. I have an interview with uh, Karthik Nagarajan, and we spoke about teams, product teams, engineering teams, other teams, and how Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing can help them. So merging a few of my different interests together. But to begin with, let's begin, as always, with my links for the week. Okay, now some of you, if you're watching the video, will see me looking at the articles I'm referring to, uh, but I'll try not to uh, be too video biased because uh, I know a lot of you are probably still listening to the audio. But first is an article from uh, Rita Liao on TechCrunch. China is building a GitHub alternative called Gitty. Um, actually, the image to me looks more, I think, in my mind, like GitLab, actually. Uh, I'm not sure what the rest of you think. Than GitHub. Why would China be doing this? Well, GitHub has had some issues with uh, asking for repositories to be uh, taken down, um, which they don't always want to do or they have issues doing. And then there's backlash from other countries that they have done that because it's effectively an American company. So I guess uh, China just thinks, well, Git is, which underlies GitHub, is an open source service. So an open source project, so why not just build our own thing on top of it? There are other alternatives. Uh, GitHub is not the only option, so why not? It's actually apparently um, nearly seven years old and is not the only Chinese-owned um, uh, Git-hosted service. Uh, and it looks like it may even be an open source project, which is kind of interesting as well. Um, and that's possibly some of the issues with some of the others. Maybe they're taking too long to localize it to Chinese. And there are open source alternatives for hosting Git as well. So um, let's see how it goes. They currently claim over 10 million open source repositories. GitHub has about 100 million. So, I mean, <laughs> for a seven-year-old service, or 10, what do we say? 10-year-old service is... Um, a seven-year-old service, it's not too bad. Actually, it's probably not much more recent than, uh, than than GitHub in some respects. So maybe we should be asking the question, why have we not heard of it before? <laughs> but let's see how that goes and how it splits kind of uh, Chinese open source, I suppose. be more interesting to see what happens there. Next, an article on um, Ben Dixon, BD Tech Talks, his blog. I did cover GPT-3 uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, and, but that was more about talking about the technical aspect of how it worked and things like that. Uh, this article is a little bit more about the story behind it, where the founders come from. And one of the founders, especially Sam Alton, who if you're watching the video is on the right in this image here, um, was quite clear to say on several occasions in many of those stories that uh, GPT-3 is not that good. It's not going to take over this much. It's not going to do that. He wanted to really downplay the, the marketing publicity. And it's interesting to read this article here 
uh, talking about some of the stories about how it got to where it is, which explains a little bit of, of what they're trying to do and where they came from. Um, so I found it good for a lot of uh, background on, on the company and the project. So if that interests you, have a read. Maybe it will change your mind about them. Maybe it won't. Maybe you just think it's all guff, not true. Who knows? Let me know your thoughts. And you can let me know your thoughts on, on this or any other article at christianjella.com. I'd love to hear from you. Following along nicely uh, is an article by Tristan Green on the next web. Uh, he is responding to articles elsewhere that uh, Google says it is going to sell ethics advice to AI companies. And his reaction was probably similar to many of your reactions, which is like, Google is going to do what? Yes, this is the company, and I'm highlighting a, a paragraph here that um, exploited homeless people to improve its facial recognition algorithms. It cut its diversity programs, and it has issued censored searches to certain countries. It has built uh, weapons platforms, and of course, its cloud services are used for all sorts of things. Um, and its ethics, shall we say, is controversial or unclear, to say the least. I actually appeared on a panel a few, uh, probably about a year or so ago, and on that panel was also someone from uh, Google, and they kind of have tried to coin this phrase of transparent AI. And I actually asked a question, what does this mean? Uh, transparent is not helpful if people don't understand it. Transparent about what? What is transparency? Etc. Etc. And I wonder what they're going to be selling to companies. Are they going to be selling it to big companies? And what is the advice they're going to give? Is it going to be, um, you know, don't worry, no, no, don't worry about it. But like, not actually the advice that activists and people from different side of the fence would want them to give, shall we say? Or is it going to be helpful advice about reducing that bias and those problems? We don't really know. Um, and it's probably unlikely we're going to find out. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting article. I would really love to hear your opinions on what you think about Google offering AI advice to, or ethics advice on AI to other companies. Okay. Uh, here's an article here from Esther Schindler on Ars Technica. Golden age of computer user groups. Some great images in this post too, which you can see some if you're watching the video. And talking about, I guess, the, the lever, lever lasting, everlasting impact of these computer user groups. Uh, there's examples here of uh, Apple, of course, being demonstrated at the Homebrew Users Club. There's Bill Gates speaking at, a very young Bill Gates speaking at user clubs. Uh, the Chaos Communication Club is still going here, I think, here in Germany and probably in other parts of the world. And what does what did they mean in the past? Why were they positive? And I guess, why are they not around so much? And in some respects, they are now with, I suppose, meetups and, and user conferences and, and things like that. Maybe that's the, the, the modern equivalent, but it's hard to say exactly. Um, and it's quite fascinating to, I, I suppose, and I suppose these user groups were predating the widespread internet. So there were the main ways that people got together and, and explored things. Whereas now it'd be easier to do them online or niche groups and things like that. I mean, computing has branched out into so many different places, whereas maybe these sorts of groups included 
kind of everybody. I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm not old enough to have ever attended them, but there's some great images here, um, mostly of, of men, of course, unsurprisingly. Uh, and then, yeah, what, what they, what it means now. But, uh, if you ever attended any of those, I would love to hear from you. What did you think? What were your thoughts? Were they worthwhile? Do you think they need a comeback, this kind of style of computer club or not? Is what we have now perfectly fine. Next, an article on um, Al Jazeera from Nicholas Comfort and Bridget Jenin on Wirecard. Wirecard, let's let's quickly explain what Wirecard is, was, and what happened, in case you don't know, because it's a somewhat German story, although probably has impact on, on Europe especially. It was, I'm still not entirely sure if the company still exists or not, a fintech that kind of supplied back-end services to many other fintechs. So uh, number 26, N26, which is a bank that is spreading around the world quite rapidly, used to use them for their credit card services. Another bank, uh, Contest, that I still use for my business banking, were using them until this controversy and then switched very quickly. Uh, So they helped a lot of companies that didn't have full licenses or didn't want to go into the territory of getting full regulation and auditing for certain features to kind of borrow features from them. It was a success story. Um, It had high ties to many levels of German government. uh, And then it was revealed not so long ago that they were committing vast commercial fraud um, and were really not as profitable as they said they were and had giant holes in their finances. And this article is specifically focusing on how did the German regulator and government let that happen? They had a lot of close connections to the German government. Were they turning a blind eye? I would often wonder that sometimes you find in Germany because it's very highly regulated, but there's also an assumption a lot of the time that people will do the right thing. There's regulation, but you don't need to worry about it because people will do the right thing. And there's sometimes it's quite easy to get away with going against rules and regulation because there's an assumption you follow them. And uh, German corporate sector has has kind of, especially in the financial sector, has has gone against this many times. Uh, Deutsche Bank is another example that has done this in the, a few years back. Um, so yeah, there's, there's questions there about how did they get away with it, and was it intentional? Was it incompetence? Who knows? And what will the German authorities learn from this in the future? There's another caveat here that I, I think is interesting to throw into the mix is that. Um, commercial banking, so uh, retail banking um, for people like myself, the common person on the street, is very low profit margin for German banks because of this regulation as well. So you start to wonder and ask the question, do some of these financial institutions get up to other nefarious things to try and make the money back from the money they actually sometimes lose in other places? I don't know. I'm not sure if it's completely relevant to this story, but it's uh, interesting if you want a bit more context and have a read of this article and and make up your own mind. Okay, rounding off here. Firstly, an article on opensource.com, rounding up the favorite open source writing tools of some of the uh, writers to opensource.com. They've had a few uh, articles on this topic. It's a topic I like a lot. I cover a lot myself as well. Um, They cover VS Codium, the open source, completely open source, lacking in a metrics version of VS Code. They talk about Vim, of course. Um, other things here, lots of people using Emacs, Vim, etc., etc. The different types of um, 
markup flavors they use. Um, but then actually some of the more interesting ones I found was around the research tools. This is something I've been looking to test. Zotero, Zotero was one I was interested to, to try my, myself because I'm looking for some other options for that. Joplin, which is like an open source, um, Evernote option. Org mode is something actually I need to, uh, I need to open up, open up that link again because it's something I actually want to look at. Org mode, which I think I can actually have a quick look for Emacs. Yep. Um, which is something I keep reading about, but it does sort of require using different tooling than I'm used to. And Vim is another one. I've actually downloaded both of these onto macOS to see how they might uh, help me um, in my process. And um, yeah, there's actually some good Reddit and all sorts of uh, all sorts of other sources of information for open source writing tools. So do have a look. And finally, definitely in the and finally section, uh, there's a there's a project here on Webflow. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the tech space over the past few weeks about no code, these kind of problems like, like Webflow, um, around uh, using these to create something meaningful. And a lot of people tended to think that they were rather toy and you had to code properly. This particular person, Sarkis is their username, decided to replicate Civilization VI, the video game, which is quite an epic game, as you might expect, uh, in Webflow. I don't know how long it took them. Uh, it has nearly 12,500 elements, just under 2,000 styles, just over 1,000 assets, 400 interactions, and is about 124 gigabytes. And I'm pretty sure that is larger than the actual game, which is interesting. But I think they wanted to prove a point that it was possible. I don't know how playable it is. I mean, I could just have a quick look, I suppose. <laughs> I, don't know if it, I don't know how much this is going to kill the browser i also wonder how legal this is <laughs> i don't need a windows emulator as well which is a positive uh, so far a lot of graphics you can clone it oh into webflow okay it's actually pretty good so far <laughs> i think it's more responsive than um than running it in my emulator that's for sure Graphics are clearer. A little bit jumpy on the mouse. Jump, jumping on the mouse. It's actually pretty impressive. <laughs> Can I zoom? I don't know how you zoom. I'm a little unsure of the, uh, the, the controls, but it's actually pretty impressive. Anyway, <laughs> enough of me playing games on the stream that's probably best saved for some of my other output. Anyway, if that interests you, have a look at the link because it's quite fascinating to see what people try. Okay, that was my links for the week. Now is my interview with Karthik Nagarajan on Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing more generally and teams. Enjoy. My name is Karthik. I am from India originally. I've bounced around the world a lot. I spent about nine years in the US working with quality assurance in software, software project management, um, agile coaching, being as a scrum master, and lastly, working with product development and product management here in Berlin for the last six years now. And when I look back at my journey, I always think of it as being someone who was obsessed with understanding what a customer's pain points were to begin with, to make sure they don't have problems. And then having that slowly 
evolve into understanding what do they want to see as opposed to what they don't want to see and how can i anticipate this how can i better work with a customer to give them effective solutions that would reduce their pain points going ahead so this is kind of how i view my journey and if i look back a significant portion of the problems that customers encounter are all stemming from communication issues that either a developer software developer is having problems understanding what a customer wants a customer makes a solution and their customers don't understand what it is and there's a huge amount of tools and technologies and processes that are coming up now to make this process better and this is how if i could segue how i got obsessed with with games and their connection with product management yeah and this is so so the other thing is i i met you years ago doing this talk which i've written in a note from over two years ago teams and dnd i'm not entirely sure if that's what it was actually called but <laughs> at dnd for just to just to unpack that it's dungeon dragons which i don't think we need to explain what that is i think it's well known enough especially in this audience um and we have been playing dnd recently um, we have but actually because of me coming to that talk which is what sparked <laughs> me that i should actually uh, finally speak to you about that talk um and you did that talk at thoughtworks who were somewhat well known for um having some interesting thinking did mm-hmm. do you work with them or did you work with them at the time or no they no, were i was aware that they had meetups and they were talking specifically about better communication innovative mm-hmm. ways of addressing customer challenges and I reached out to them and said, "Hey, I heard you have this meetup. Are you interested in having someone talk about this topic?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Hmm, this is interesting. This is something we've never heard of before. Sure, why not?" Really? See, I so I wrote a blog post probably about the same time actually, about maybe a couple of years ago about game gaming for developers, board games for developers and had some similar points with to what you said, although board games tend to be competitive, not all. Uh, whereas roleplay games tend to not be competitive again not all but um that's the usual case um and i don't know if board games necessarily improve communication i kind of did it for other things it it depends um but you're definitely right around the communication in in roleplay games and that's something we're probably going to touch on quite a lot <laughs> um so what what started you thinking on this idea in the first place the one of the things we were going through in our company at the time was that it was a new team a lot of people had come and gone and we were needing to kind of establish or reestablish rapport within the team so we said okay let's try to figure out some kind of team activities so being from a corporate background my understanding was let's get a corporate trainer to come in and fix this for us so i asked my boss is there like budget for this and he said no we're a startup we can't afford things like this so you figure something out go play some games i don't know so i asked around the team like do you have board games just bring it to the office let's play so on friday evenings after work we would crack open some drinks and have some snacks and play some board games together and this was fun so we played the first time we played uh, ticket to ride which is a fun game we played risk um and uh, these are a lot of fun the team bonded together there was a lot of 
competitiveness, backstabbing, strategy, and we had a chill environment and we got to know each other a little bit better. Uh, so we became better friends, but this was not having a direct impact on the way we were working. At work, we were still very serious and sort of isolated, but when we were gaming, we were getting to know each other better. So I was like, okay, there is, there is something here. Something is happening here, but it's it's not taking us in the right in the right direction enough. And this is when just randomly one of the team members suggested, "Hey, this is this game called Dungeons and Dragons, where it's like a fantasy world role playing game. You talk and you figure things out." And I was like, "All right, uh, sure, let's try it out." So he was the game master, and the team was the player. We are all the players. We played together, and. Directly, weeks after playing this game, we found that our team was working together much better and we were actually understanding each other much better because the game was delving deeper into our something. And this got me thinking as to, wait, why is this happening? There's something going on here that is not happening in any of the other games and it's helping us work better together. What is it? Um, This is also around the time that the person who was conducting the game was saying, you guys are having too much fun. I want to play. So you run the game now. So he handed it off to me and I started figuring out how to learn. And this was around the time I was starting to watch board games. So I was watching uh, this series called Tabletop by Will Wheaton on YouTube. And I was like, okay, let's find board games which will be useful. And that led me to a random YouTube video of Vin Diesel playing... Dungeons and Dragons called D&D Diesel as a promotion for a strange movie he made called The Witch Hunter or something, The Last Witch Hunter. And uh, this was being run by Matthew Mercer, the DM for Critical Role. And I was like, wow, this is this is really fun. For In an hour, you did so much. And that got me watching Critical Role. And I wanted to try this out. So at work, we were playing once every week, once every two weeks, but it was very slow. And I wanted more experience. So I started a game on the side. And this was uh, the Horde of the Dragon Queen and the Rise of Tiamat. So it's about dragons and stuff. And this is also going a little slow. I wasn't able to schedule enough games to really get into the experience. So I started another campaign about Norse mythology and giants, Storm Kings, Thunder. So I was running three games, one in the office, two outside, just to get the exposure of how does this running a game actually work? How can I get more experience much faster? And what I realized later was I was trying to get in product terminology. I was trying to get MVP experience. How can I create an MVP product quickly, launch it quickly to get as many learnings and lessons as possible so that I can improve my core product. And I started seeing these direct correlations between D&D and uh, working in a product team. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to move through my notes. This doesn't necessarily, I mean, this presentation was two years ago. So the fact it doesn't follow in any logical order doesn't necessarily matter so much because you probably don't even remember the talk. So, <laughs> um, I mean, actually, the first thing that jumps out at me, and obviously, um, Dungeons and Dragons, especially the past couple of years, I would almost say in the few years, probably 2018, when you did this talk, and then the past few years has had an explosion of popularity. And then even much more so in the past few months. Um, there's various reasons for that. Um, and recently there's been some change around this, but certainly probably back in 2018, Dungeons and Dragons has a few, um, 
a few complications. One of them is it has a tendency to be fairly violent, um, or that's its main kind of <laughs> its main kind of reason. You know, there's plenty of role play games that aren't, but Dungeons and Dragons is mostly about fighting, really. <laughs> even if you're a magician or something, you're kind of combat oriented. And if you have like utility spells, they're always somewhat limited use traditionally. Um, so did, is there anything in that that worried you to begin with about having a team around the table talking about like killing things and stuff like that? <laughs> or was it so abstract? It doesn't, you know, people understand that it's, it doesn't mean anything. I don't know. Was, was there any problems there? Looking back into the history, like you said, of Dungeons and Dragons, it obviously has its initial history in the game of chess, which yeah. is about emperors and empresses and your armies defeating each other. So it is killing, but it is so abstracted because it's more of strategic thinking as opposed to I'm capturing the spawn mm. as opposed to I'm brutally killing the spawn or whatever. Um, and this evolved into the war games of mm. uh, German Prussia where Bismarck supposedly taught battlefield strategy to his uh, generals through... Yep board games like so, which then became hobby war gaming where authors like H.G. Wells was an avid war gamer and had huge collections of minifigures that they used to play with. And all of this evolved into the simplified form of Dungeons and Dragons, which was initially more combat centric. And then the role playing elements got tagged on mm -hmm. and grew over time as the fantasy elements became more and more interesting and relevant. And what I also realized is that Combat is the simplest and easiest way to understand. Mm. So when mm. a group starts off playing D&D, &D, the first thing they understand best is how the combat works because it's the most fair, it's the most regulated, and they, and they understand chess. They understand turn-based mm. fighting, so to speak. And it's easy to get into it. And once they get a grasp of who they are and they realize, wait, I'm not limited to this. I can do anything. And this is when they start expanding into, oh, I can affect the story. There's something going on here. I can do things together. I can affect the way we work together in either way. Um, mm -hmm. Are you still there? I'm seeing a cat. Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. its tail. <laughs> I'm just making sure. Something has gone weird with my camera, but uh, I'm still here, yes. <laughs> so, so, so it is an evolution where just like when a new team member joins a product company, you can't make them rebuild your entire website. You start giving them a smaller thing. You give them a bug, which is like a monster to kill. And then they fix that. And then they understand how the bug works. Then you give them a little feature, which is, okay, let's help this town out with the problem it has. Then let's give them a group of features. Okay, let's help this political issue in this town. And then, okay, let's give them ownership of this product, which is, mm -hmm. I want to run for mayor of the town. What does that even mean? How does this work? So it takes time for uh, an employee to start with something concrete and then move on to something more abstract, which is general role playing. So it, it kind of mirrors the journey of anybody joining a new team, a new company with figuring out their place. <laughs> <laughs> you've practiced that haven't you <laughs> well, it's in, I mean it's part of the talk in a way yeah, and it's something yeah, yeah, that yeah. I am uh, yeah no it's it's interesting I'd actually like to come back to some of that in a minute but the, I'm going to jump forward to a, a point I mean so having played with you you're a very particular sort of uh, games master dungeon master um, 
Actually, that's one discussion I haven't seen about changing that word as well, but that's another conversation. Um, you're a very particular one and you, you tend to not run D&D games in the most traditional way or the most traditional way I'm used to anyway. I don't know if, if that's just the people I've played with. Um, whereas my past experience was often, so this is something I, I think I, I wrote down here, reasoning with the monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is something I've often found in Dungeons and Dragons, like, it's always very difficult and it could be that you have uh, players and a, and a, and a games um, runner that is, um, that is, is very rules focused. And if you try to do something that's just kind of interesting, it, it just doesn't suit their kind of the way they want to run the game. Um, or it could be that um, you have a character that, you have a great idea, but the character isn't very good at that. Um, so, you know, sometimes there's these difficulties if you want to do something, but it doesn't work, which is obviously the real world. But a lot of characteristics in on the player characters in Dungeons & Dragons are around combat. And even when you have an interesting spell, you kind of do something with it and it's like, well, eh. or Or negotiating with a monster, the scenarios aren't written that way. It's like, well, you negotiate with the monster, but... I don't really know what to do now kind of thing because <laughs> so so my experience has always been that negotiating with the monster never works, um, which is unfortunate. And, and it's often, as I say, probably just a symptom of the way a lot of scenarios, mainstream scenarios are written. I think there's a lot that aren't like that. Um, and I've written under subnotes from here, understanding the blockers, except but challenge as to why, and most importantly, question the rules. And this is something where Dungeons & Dragons is not always good at. Again, it depends. You know, there's some games that encourage that more. Dungeons & Dragons, you can do it, but it doesn't necessarily encourage it as much. Um, so, yeah, that was a long-winded way of saying. Uh, <laughs> so how, how do you try the kind of negotiation in, in your games and trying to get a team to learn to negotiate instead of just... Um, conflict, which is what you're almost trying to stop them doing in some respects. What I've realized is that it's partly, of course, the Dungeon Master, where yeah. the DM is not an antagonist to the players. The DM just represents the world as it is. <laughs> supposed I would to. argue that depends, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the players are supposed to figure out what they want to do. And this sort of also shows an arc in the players' yeah. kind of maturity and their development where what you observed in our game is a direct result of the players asking for a certain style of gameplay. Yeah. And I have another game where they're into combat. They want to kill the biggest, baddest, meanest monsters and that's it. And it's only over time that as they've invested in these characters that they are interested in exploring the story of these characters and their uh, more interested in seeing what the world has in store for them. Mm. And uh, part of what was in my talk as well was initially when my players in my company encountered goblins, their first instinct was let's fight and kill these <laughs> goblins and be yeah. done with it. But later on, when they found a monster was guarding a treasure, they're like, wait, this is an abandoned mine. Why is this monster even here? Like, is somebody <laughs> chaining it here? Is it like, is it has it been summoned here? Let's go talk to it. And they're like, oh, this monster has been contracted by the devils to 
guard this place for 100 years what if we just tell it that I, and I, I know exactly what scenario you're talking about here <laughs> <laughs> so this is the players kind of uh, thinking outside the box saying wait yeah. this this is a little odd why is this happening and this directly translates to how they behaved in the company when they were working <laughs> where as developers they were when they had a problem initially their first instinct was to complain and saying i have a problem fix it for me why is this having a problem my job is just to focus on this task and move on to the next task hmm. but then they evolved their thinking into why is this person giving me a problem mm-hmm. what is it that they are looking for that i'm not able to provide right now why are uh, so many roadblocks existing let me go and talk to this person and so this evolved into their own internal mindset of talking to the other people in the company to understand what their problems were and to see oh you know what this person is not the problem there is just a process that's in place for so long which nobody has bothered questioning and maybe that is the source of the problem and this yeah. person is just trying to protect themselves yeah so they translated some of this learning into real world communication as well where it's like yeah everything doesn't need to be brute forced or to be fought with sometimes it's collaboration sometimes it's discussion sometimes it's about making allies mm Yeah, it's interesting. And this has come up a few times in in fantasy recently. I actually even though it wasn't a very good film, I really loved the um World of Warcraft film where you have like the orcs trying to get their homeland back. And it's you kind of start questioning. And even um Austin Powers did it when they uh ring like the wife of one of the minions. It's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, he's dead." It's like, "Oh, I told him he shouldn't have become." <laughs> it's sort of, you know, you, you always think they're just these faceless people. I I had a friend yeah. actually in our old uh, D&D group in uh, Melbourne who wrote an article about all this and it was, it was quite fascinating he just charged in oh goblins kill them it's like why <laughs> and some of the early scenarios are especially wonderful because it is so random it's like here's a room with some stuff in it why because <laughs> so, all right um So actually and then another thing I wanted to ask you is have you tried any other systems? Um in Dungeons and Dragons is the best known. It's often the easiest to explain culturally because people have kind of heard of it. Um but it's not necessarily the easiest. It's not even necessarily the best for narrative. In fact, it's not the best for narrative storytelling and there's definitely systems that encourage storytelling more, spontaneity more, and also discourage conflict. Um and have you tried any others? Uh my first exposure was to Shadowrun which oh, is more God. of a futuristic version of this. Oh, wow. uh, it did not go so well because no, 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 no. It's a very complicated. Uh, we, yeah. we had no idea what we were doing. Um I have not personally played other systems apart from D&D but yeah. I have simplified D&D for example in the talk that you were at I presented the players with an extremely simple version of D&D where it was just a d6 die and that's it. You just roll that for all your whatever and Uh I've seen this system called Honey Heist which is even yep. simpler yep. supposedly. Uh I watched a couple of games and it's the focus is more on storytelling mechanics and things like this and w- what I found is when uh, uh when I have a game that's being planned I try to balance out combat versus narrative versus exploration and this is how I also try to balance out when I work as a product manager mm-hmm. which is uh how am i adding value to my customer by giving them cool things how am i uh, addressing problems that they're facing 
and how am I handling tech backlog, which nobody will ever see, but is kind of essential for the mm-hmm. proper functioning and scalability of my product. So I need to cater to all of these different things at once as a product manager at the same time in order for the product to be an effective system. So this kind of evolves with how you face your group as a dungeon master, where initially you present them with things, but based on how you see them respond, you have to evolve and adapt. So you have to talk to your customer more often to say, do you like what I gave you? What do you expect to see when you see a new update from me? And it's just a question of this dialogue constantly happening and, uh, you should not be so hard and fast stuck to a particular yeah. rule or system. Yeah. Another example is with, for example, Jira. We use this for our project management. And uh, just from experience over the last, let's say, four years, I've seen the team want to change the Jira process every six months. And each time it's because the way they want to communicate their process with each other is different. The way they think about their process is different. And the moment you change the process to suit their way of thinking, they're immensely happy. Yeah. But then they leave the team, they change teams, they change projects, and then the system no longer works. Yeah. yeah. And you have to change it again. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a problem in Jira. This is not a problem in the way the standard processes are. And you can't just randomly select processes. Like I've seen Scrum Masters come into new companies and just say, I don't like this process. I'm going to change yep. the whole process. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. It depends on who the people are, how they're using it, what they're trying to accomplish and what their problems are. You have to adapt it to that. Yeah. It's actually interesting you say that because I think games, the two you mentioned there, like Shadowrun and Dungeons and & Dragons, can very easily turn into GM versus players. And they almost they almost indirectly kind of encourage it, even though they never say that. (laughs) Whereas others are much more intentionally, you are here for the players, go with what makes it fun. So actually one we've been playing recently with a group that I've been quite enjoying. And I think you might like to try for some of what you've mentioned is called Blades in the Dark. It's it's a bit darker, um, but you don't have to do it like that. Like you're kind of criminals and and stuff like that. But I mean, it's relatively flexible. But the system actively encourages collaborative storytelling. Uh, it encourages the characters to play to their characteristics. Um, and failure is okay. Um, it encourages the, the players to work together. They have like, you have a gang and you have a gang kind of aims. And if you achieve those aims together, then you also level up. Um, but then also the, the system is quite good for the, the story teller i'm not actually sure what they they call it i can't remember to to kind of not really plan very much and go with it and go with the narrative um and it's all d6 as well so um that's actually one i've been enjoying quite a bit um it takes it takes some getting used to actually of uh trying to trying to play your character more which i know sounds kind of weird because that's what you're supposed to do but we all know that sometimes difficult um or it's not always possible in the setting but it kind of strongly encourages you to do so it's the only way you get experience points is kind of by playing your character not any other way um so i've actually found that quite interesting and there's many others like that honey heist is one you mentioned on the one extreme of kind of ultimate indie one two pages uh, and and blades in the dark sits somewhere between that and something like Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> but there's a lot of and um, tales from the loop. I also quite liked because it's very gentle. You play children, mm-hmm. 
It actually came out before Stranger Things, but it's very similar. Um, Stranger Things is quite dark. <laughs> yeah, and Tales, well, Tales from the Loop isn't. They've made a TV series now, which actually I'm unsure of. I find the TV series a bit too slow, which is kind of the point of the game, but it works as a game, but I'm not sure about it works as a TV series. Um, and they, it, it, it discourages conflict. And if mm-hmm. the children get into trouble, they go home. You don't want to kill children. Okay. That's pretty yeah. kind of, yeah. you know, so, so it's like, it, and it's this weird kind of, it's, it's a very, it's a very kind of gentle system, um, mm-hmm. which can sometimes be hard to run, but it's actually, it's actually quite nice. Um, that company makes a lot of very good games, actually. It's a Swedish company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. One thing that has been standing out to me on my notes from some time is, um, which has definitely happened in many a D&D game and in many cooperative board games. This is concept in cooperative board games of the alpha player, uh, which you've mentioned here about, I've underlined, don't be a hero. Um, didn't collaborate and ran off trying to fix before the task was finished. Don't be a hero. I don't know. <laughs> so I mean, this is an aspect that can happen sometimes in, in, in role play games. And, and there's kind of a related point to this I'll come to in a minute. But yeah, what's the, there's obviously a parallel between, um, your work and a role playing game of encouraging people to work together. And how do you encourage that in, in either way, I suppose? This is something that's been puzzling me for some time. And I got an insight into this sometime during this talk as well, mm. where initially the players would come. I would have no idea who they are or what they wanted to do. I would present some things. They would do something. They would have fun. And we would learn something about each other. Mm. And one of these things is called backstory, which is mm. who is your character? What do they want? What do they want to do? Why are they here? What are they trying to accomplish? And I started equating this to a developer who just joins a team and says, just give me something to do and I'll do it. Mm. You don't know anything about them, what they want, what their interests are. There is no expectation that's known. They might have some secret expectation. Like I wish I had no more challenging something. Uh, and I found that when a player focuses on elaborating a little bit more of their backstory, which is, this is where I'm from. This is my background. Because of these reasons, I have these problems. This is what I'm looking to accomplish. Uh, I'm interested in exploring these aspects of the world. Uh, and when a player comes to your table with this, you already know how they're going to react to a certain scenario. So you can plan certain things better for them. And it's the same thing for working in a product team where you already know what a player's or a developer's expectations are. And you know that if you present something to this person, they are going to challenge you Mm -hmm. and ask you, wait, why are you doing this? Why do you want to do this? Or you already know that this is something of their interest and they will take it and run with it and do something interesting with it. So this concept of uh, defining your backstory, which is not just thinking about who you are, but communicating who you are and what you want to do is a big deal. And this plays a little bit into the part of don't be a hero and work as a team where if a team knows what a person wants and if they do something, it's easier for other people to collaborate and support this person as opposed to, yeah, he's off doing something. I don't know what he's doing. Um, I'm just going to wait and watch, wait for him to fail basically and then go and help him out. So Mm. 
this is kind of the attitude that um, can be equated to this. Uh, also, what I realized then was people who were superstars on the team, when I had them on my team, I thought the team was unshakable. Mm. This person is going to figure out everything. Mm. But in 90% of the cases, this person was very frustrated and would leave the team because none of the other people on the team got this person. Mm. And this person always got into fights with other people and mm. could not uh, drive changes, could not drive initiatives, could not lead initiatives, could not even suggest ideas to other people because they were just not interested in listening to what this person had to say. So their talent was ultimately going to waste. Not because they were talented, but just because they didn't know how to communicate, coordinate, collaborate, cooperate with another person. Whereas five minutes of talking about how would you want to do this? How would you implement this? How would you suggest we improve? This would have taken them much further. Mm. Um, so it's okay to have heroes, but it's more important that you figure out how to build on ideas together and take ideas from other people. Because it doesn't matter how big your idea is. If you have a strong team, that's what you need to accomplish something big. Yeah, It's like to, to build a house, you don't need one awesome person. You need 10 capable people. And actually, so one of the things I've written, I think, from one of your final notes, I think, in the talk was the best team, not the best idea but i suppose not the best person as well and and this is actually i think one of my frustrations sometimes with dungeons and dragons is you have you have uh character classes that are often very much the backup class uh they kind of help the other players and sometimes they can get a bit frustrating to play because you always kind of you're never you're never the person who 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 makes the big success you're always the person who helps other people make their big success something like a monk is a classic example of this you're kind of not the best, but you're very good at, at making it good for other people. And if you have a team that doesn't recognize that once in a while, it can sometimes get a bit frustrating playing them because you're kind of like, you know, here I go again. And <laughs> but then that person kind of, you know, got the got the big win in the end, and it's sort of like, oh, yeah. um, and there's there's some classes like that, and I, I think. Uh, I've often played those, which is why actually with your game, it's like, I'm going to play a fighter because I've never actually played the person who's just the front doing it. Like I've always played someone who's kind of back here helping. <laughs> um, and I don't know. It's uh, it's the different interesting sorts of dynamics that I don't know if, I don't think it was ever intentional in the design of Dungeons & Dragons, but it's the way it's kind of, it's come out. But something you've, you also said there about the, the backstory this is actually a conversation we've been having. I, I'm i not sure if it's a limitation in my mind of Dungeons & Dragons or if it's just um, something else, but I tend to not go into games with a big idea of who I want to be. I do tend to make it up a little bit as I go along and then it settles into that. Um, I don't really know why. Uh, maybe it's I don't watch enough related fantasy to kind of... I don't carry around... I saw this character in a in a TV show or read it in a book and I want to create a character that's like them. I don't tend to do that. I don't really know why for any particular reason. Um, I tend to yeah make it up as I go along for a little while and then it sort of settled into something. So a character I had in a in a four-year 
D&D game probably only became a solid actual character after about four or five months, really, um, when you kind of were mm-hmm. realizing who they could be. And some of it's also, you know, you don't know what the dungeon master is going to be like. You don't know what the other players are going to be like. Maybe you have a great idea and then someone else has had the same idea and that doesn't really work or it does or whatever. So you're never 100% sure. Um, but it's, it's also maybe it's my partial engineer brain because something you said there about the, the, the work, your work life is interesting because I tend to be somewhat the same. I go into work and I think here's some problems that need to fix, I need to fix. Um, not stepping back. Um, and for the first time in quite some time, I have a new job opportunity where I can do that. And I've always wanted to. But there's a little bit of me. It's like, I don't really know what to do either. I've never really had the opportunity to do it before. So it was like, what do I do? Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm quite fascinated to see how you've tried to weave those two things together to make developers step back and think. I'm struggling a little bit in my mind to think how that might change how they work right now. Um, but I'm guessing more abstractly, it's that thinking about the, the user and stuff like that, which is, we all know, a common thing people will say, but whether they actually do it is is something else. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite interesting about thinking about your motivation. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I need to go and I need to go back and have a think about some things and I'm not entirely sure where, where it's going to lead me, but it's been quite interesting that you mentioned that as a way to get team members to think about True. their work as well. Yeah. When it comes to a mindset, what I've also found is uh, as a product manager versus as a dungeon master, if I'm planning my campaigns, mm. if I'm picking existing modules to run and I'm reading through yep. them yep. to figure out what to do, this is equi- equivalent to a product manager who is joining a company where there is an existing backlog yeah, yeah, and yeah, you have yeah. to figure out which of this you yeah. can run in what way. Whereas a DM who is homebrewing a lot of their own content yeah. is trying to understand what their players actively want yeah. plus what they think is actually actively interesting and is going to make a, for a good game. And this translates into a product manager being the one who comes up with innovative strategy, who comes up with, you mm. know what, nobody in the market is doing this. We need to make an MVP and, and launch this and see what happens. Yeah, And these MVPs are like one-shots. Like, you know what, let's make an evil one-shot and see how that goes. Yeah. Let's make a one-shot where it's just politics. And you try one session and you see if your players like it yeah. and then you continue that. You don't plan a whole campaign yeah. without knowing whether your players want to do this or not. And I can give you another example of uh, world building where one of the players in another campaign, all that they mentioned were two things to me. One was that their character's name was Moon Unit Zappa, uh, named after actual Frank Zappa, yeah, yeah, Moon yeah, Unit yeah, Zappa, yeah. and that they were a cleric of Loki. <laughs> so these are the two seeds that they had given me, not elaborate, but I built an entire campaign arc just around these two things. <laughs> I basically found out who Moon Unit's real family was, and yeah. I made NPCs with all of those traits, and... I made the entire second half of the campaign about Norse mythology and Loki and why she's the last cleric of Loki and why there's no other clerics of Loki, for example. It's actually strange you mentioned that because, so I've been running a beginner's D&D game recently following the Lost Minds of um, Vandalos. 
or whatever it is. I can't remember. F- Fandelva. Fandelva. I don't know. I keep calling it Fandelos, and then I wonder, why was this Fandelva word? So that's probably why. Because <laughs> the town is called Fandeline. So. I know. And that's, that's why I was confused. I've been calling it the wrong thing the whole time. Fair enough. Um, and it's been an interesting one because the group dynamic is quite interesting. There is no fighter, actually. So... Um, we had a minor encounter in the last scenario and half the characters died. And I was kind of like, what do I do? You know, <laughs> this kind of sucks. They've only just started. So uh, whereas when I played it as a player, we kind of breezed through those things because we had uh, a fighter and some other more fighty types. And then they also had a very interesting idea. And there was nothing in the scenario book that said like what to do, what to do with that idea, which is, you know, you can't account for every possibility. So I was sort of scratching my head and thinking, that was a really nice idea they had, but what do I do with it? I'll have to, I'll have to make, improvise for now and go away and think about how I can bring that back later because they've actually had a really cool idea. Um, but then interestingly, I would also agree with you that sometimes when I have run and played homebrew, uh, content or content that is largely improvised with a few seeds, it's often more enjoyable, even if it can sometimes be a bit random and sometimes players come back to you and say, but hang on, wait a minute, two weeks ago you said this. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, I was wrong or something because, you know, you can't remember everything. Um, But often it's been more enjoyable because you get to do what you want to do, not work within the confines. Um, And those scenario books can sometimes be almost limiting or, you, you know, you, someone suggests something and you think, how did they not think someone would suggest this? This seems so obvious. You know? <laughs> so, so, yeah, the homebrew stuff can be easier than people think, I think, is actually the, the, the big challenge. A lot of DMs especially think, oh, this is going to be really hard. But actually, quite often it's not if you have the right group dynamic. Um, yeah. There's something I've been thinking about in terms of uh, D&D, which is, impact versus lore like yeah. a lot of dms have the habit of just dumping buckets of yes. lore on their players uh, which is equivalent to as a product manager giving them pages and pages of business knowledge to read <laughs> or customer knowledge to read or domain knowledge to read yeah. up. and this is boring yeah. for players for developers and yeah. what developers really want is to know how what they're doing is making an impact yeah and whether it's making an impact or not which is similar to what players want to know, which is how is an action that I'm taking manifesting in the world in that particular context. And in that context, any lore that they learn is very interesting for them, not random bits of lore that are just disconnected. So in this sense, this knowledge management and so to speak, (laughs) uh, as as a product manager, I was guilty of this where I would just, oh, I know these things. I want to share my knowledge with my group now. And they would... They would just be bored to tears. Yeah. Whereas now it's more of trying to figure out, okay, how can I pick out relevant content for them to share, which is context sensitive to what they're actually doing right now. Yeah. And of course, we all know the, the concept of metagaming where you might do this and then someone says, but that's not right. That's not what this book says. And you're kind of, well, sure, but, <laughs> is, you know, and it, it, again, it depends on the players. Um, I've definitely played in both groups. Um, That's a fun, funny topic, though, because I I love meta gaming in the context of uh, we have two players now in our current campaign who are also in my other campaign. Uh, and yeah, what I've yeah, told yeah. them is that it's the same world. You may meet the same characters, but you don't know. <laughs> but it's always a mystery. So, like, wait a second, I, this character seems familiar. I know them from somewhere. So for them. Meta gaming is when they 
connect one thread to the other thread and they're like yeah. wait oh this is how this connects to this and they are like fan girling or what are fan geeking out over something that they realized which nobody else has realized and this this moment that sparks joy is what is a, is a good part of meta gaming where it's like you 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 learn something yeah. that nobody else did yeah but it often isn't that is it that's the thing yeah. <laughs> Great. This has been a great talk. Actually, I think I got through two of the points that on my notes <laughs> out of uh, about six. So um, on on either gaming front or on your product manager front, whatever front you want, um, how can people get in touch with you if, if you want them to? Um, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I go by the handle Art of Karthik. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Karthik Nagarajan. You can find me there. Uh, there's, I think, some videos of my talks as well, mm, okay. which I've linked. I have been interviewed for Scrum Master podcasts and so on. So some of my material is online. Uh, but in general, if somebody wants me to come by to their company and run games of D&D for them, I'm <laughs> happy to do so. <laughs> That's not work, surely. No, I'm just about... <laughs> so, yeah, Actually, there are professional, professional games runners now. So, yeah. Why not? But you do make, do you release some content onto, um, um, oh, I forget what the website's called. The, the DM Skill. Yes. Yeah. Do you release some or not? Are you about to? Um, I've done a lot of smaller size content, uh, smaller adventures. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, that you don't know what you put out is going to be interesting no. until you do so. Yeah. Two of the most interesting contents I've put out are Treasure Island, yep. which is an adventure based on the book which people love because it's very kid-friendly, it's well-balanced, it's kind of mirrors a well-functioning application that you build and you release. Mm -hmm. So this is nice. And the second is uh, elections in Fandelheim, which is (laughs) uh, the corrupt mayor of this town has run away with all the money. What are you going to do about it? Do you want to stand for elections and become the next mayor? And people are like, I can do this? Like, what? Yeah, yeah. And this was hinted at in the uh, Lost Minds game, I think, from memory, when I played it as a player. Just a little. It was very loose. And this is equivalent to in your team, if you are empowering your developer to take over a project and run it themselves. (laughs) And they're like, what what do you mean I can run this project? Or I can decide? (laughs) Cool. And and how do you have a username on on DMs Guild that people can find you? You can find me on Art of Karthik as well. Cool. Good. Yeah, I definitely need to get some stuff up there. I, I have a tendency to sometimes always start with overly complex things that take me forever. And then I think, why did I start with this? I should have started with something simple. And But I have some that will actually be ready soon and very nearly finished. And I think the D&D one I want to do, I think I will make it much uh, simpler and, and homebrew it more than try to have a whole arc written out. Um, it basically, in, in related, in related yeah. content... Um... You were mentioning the fighter. I'm making a homebrew, homebrew class for the fighter who is more focused on supporting the group in terms of uh, leading the group. Like mm. you would have a, a Roman centurion yeah. commanding. A, so yeah. the school yeah. of battlefield command, so to speak, where yeah. the benefits are not to you personally, but you offer the benefits in terms of strategic thinking and fighting to huh. your team. Sort okay. of like a product coach. In a way, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, that's one that often I feel like the fighter often becomes the leader of the group just because that's not always appropriate, though. I don't know. It's leader dynamics in a and group have often shifted around, I've found over time, depending on the context and things like that. 
Um, anyway, yeah, I think we could keep talking about this for hours. <laughs> which, which means we need a round two sometime. Yeah, maybe just do a new podcast. <laughs> that was my interview with Karthik. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, many things to tell you about. Uh, the last Dexpose Dex stream was me covering Rasa, a natural language processing tool, actually from here in Berlin. I have written articles about it before, but I wanted to see what they've been up to. And actually, they've added quite a lot of new tools, which I was quite impressed with. It was quite a good experience. I had some Python problems, as you'll see, but that's not really Rasa's fault. <laughs> My gaming stream, I did part two of Ex Novo. That got me a lot of new followers, which was quite good. Um, you can find both those streams on my YouTube channel. Link in the show notes. I realized I was actually directing people to a YouTube channel that is not mine. So I stopped doing that. Uh, the Dexpose you can find on twitch.tv slash Dexpose. And the Solo Adventurer on Twitch Solo Adventurer. There will be more to follow. I am um, this week doing Gentleman Bandit for Solo Adventurer. And I am going to be looking at Hasura for Dexpose. So tune in at some point this week. Watch my various social accounts to find out when I'm going to do those. The first episode of the Board Game Jerk podcast is live. Um, if you look on Board Game Geek, Board Game Geek, Board Game Geek.com, you will find links to it. It is slowly finding its way to podcasting platforms. So keep an eye out. You can find details about me, how to contact me, and everything else I've been up to on ChristianShiller.com. Please rate, review, share the show if you've enjoyed it. And until next time, thank you very much for joining me.